For the past two summers, my son's soccer team has worked with a local group that does speed and agility training. I know nothing about the staff that does the training, but I've lived around high-level college athletes and performance coaches, and I'm genuinely curious about their workouts. I've learned a lot about what goes into it. So because of that, I know one size doesn't fit all. And I had concerns about my son just being placed in a large group training with trainers that I don't really know. From my point of view, I think you need to screen a kid and get a feel for how they move and where their deficiencies are before you really start training them. So I wasn't thrilled about the large group training. In the summer off season, I wanna know who's training my son, what methods they're using, and I want it to be appropriate for him and his deficiencies. Does that make me a bad parent? I don't think so. I think it's because I'm an educated parent. My guest today might be able to help me answer that. Rick Howard formed the National Strength and Conditioning Association's Youth Special Interest Group. He has presented on youth fitness topics around our country and around the world. Coach Howard, welcome to the Youth Sports Experience. Mark, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to have a conversation about my favorite topic. <laughs> yeah, I really look forward to learning from you um, because to me, this is still, as far as I know, a bit of a frontier, you know, training kids. Um, and before we dive into that, tell me a little bit about your background and how you ended up as someone who trains kids. Uh, that's a good question. I have my doctorate in uh, health promotion and wellness from Rocky Mountain University out in Provo, Utah. Uh, my focus of my research, of course, was on uh, peak height velocity. Uh, the study was done on boys uh, looking at the maturational changes in their ability to squat and to jump uh, before they hit puberty and after they hit puberty. I really got into this uh, world when I was in Philadelphia. I actually had a fitness center up there. And I started to notice, um, I had a, a program with one of the local high schools. They actually had a fitness academy. So they would send students over to me. Uh, they would help with uh, training programs for people. They would take blood pressures and we would talk about where they were. I started to go to see some of their contests. And it was just fascinating to me to notice the level of athletic performance that they naturally had but a lot of kids didn't. At the same time, I got involved with the facility in the suburbs where it had all these opportunities for kids to go and play all these games and do all these things. But what I noticed was they didn't really have that same level of skill. So I said, well, let me find out more about this. And, and back at that time, the President's Council actually used to keep a really extensive library of articles and artifacts and stuff. And this was around the same time that Arnold Schwarzenegger was doing his inner city games uh, around the country. My wife and I actually ran the inner city games in Philadelphia. Yeah. So we went down to the president's council, find out more information. And that's kind of how I got involved in uh, setting up uh, different uh, things for kids to do in Philly. And then from that, it kind of graduated onto uh, what I did with NSEA. So, so now I know two things. I got to call you Dr. Rick Howard. Uh, <laughs> <Adam>. <laughs> Um, and then too, I'm already curious now when you talked about peak height velocity, uh, jumping and I guess sprinting, uh, things like that, you know, with prepubescent and I guess post pubescent or maybe in puberty boys, uh, did you discover any great secrets, you know, any, any, what we would call cheat codes in, in the video game world that people play now? Uh, yeah, the thing that I discovered is that if we coach well, kids can do things, you know, without giving them any coaching, some of their technique was not solid. Uh, so the results of my study really were not all that exciting, but I think the, the big key 
takeaway for me from that certainly was that, you know, I, I think if we'd had the study set up in such a way that we had an intervention where we showed them what to do correctly, uh, we probably would have seen some significant changes, which we would expect. But like you mentioned earlier, we don't always know what that looks like. How do we coach it? What is it supposed to look like? So uh, that was my key takeaway from the study. Mm -hmm. uh, I mentioned my open. I'm hesitant to just throw my kids into a large group training where I know nothing about the people doing it. Uh, mm -hmm. When a parent says to you, my kid's soccer team or my kid's basketball team is being asked to go do this group speed and agility, agility training, uh, what's your advice uh, towards that? How do we know if the people doing it are going to do a good job? You know, it, it's interesting because it's a real challenge because the word out there, you know, everybody wants their kid to be the best they can be. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, for somehow in our society, we thought that the bigger, faster, stronger mentality of getting kids out doing things as early as possible is best. But I like to use examples from other subjects in school. So all of a sudden, if you found that, that your son or daughter could add pretty well, would all of a sudden you sign them up for calculus? No, you wouldn't even think of doing that. But in the sports environment, that's exactly what we do. So we don't even know if they have the fundamental motor skills, the growth and uh, maturity needed, the, the strength that they need in order to express speed, agility, power, all of these things at what age. So just to throw them into a speed agility camp doesn't necessarily, it's going to be the most appropriate for them at that age. The nice part about it is most programs work for most kids as long as they don't do anything dangerous. But you know that that's really the caveat. And, and do you really need to be spending money on a program when your kids are gonna get better just because they get older and bigger? Right, right. Um, from reading your bio and a little bit about you, you're a proponent of what's called long-term athlete development, right? Correct. I don't think most Americans really know what that is, but when you read about it, it seems to make some sense. Uh, where does the awareness level in this country about it? Uh, well, I'm, I'm hoping that after the current Olympics are over, people will start to reframe how we think about athletes and elite competition and really what's the purpose and, and what do we want to get out of that participation. And, you know, from a society, we should be looking at it that our long-term gains should be cradle to grave, uh, not just as the elite competitor that kind of gets, you know, used by society in some manners of speaking, not always, but you know, what's, what's the real purpose? Why do we want our kids to be involved in sports in the first place? So the long-term approach really shows us, you know, sports is an excellent vehicle to get kids in shape, to teach them valuable life lessons, to show them how to get along with others, and hopefully to get them excited about being physically active for the rest of their lives. But what we see in sports too often uh, is that athletes at the end of their career, uh, there was an unusual but interesting study done by the National Athletic Trainers Association a number of years ago. They looked at Division I athletes uh, post-graduation and then one year later. One year later, the majority of those athletes were as sedentary as the rest of the population because they never really learned what to do, why to do it, how to do it, or they'd suffered significant injuries from participating in their sport to the point where they were sedentary one year after participating at the Division I level. So... Um, the awareness, the education of this in the United States is uh, very small. Uh, we have a small group of people who are committed and dedicated to long-term athletic development. Uh, there's some issues with the name, which we try to figure out how to get around. You know, you talk in a physical education setting and athletes, you know, it's kind of like uh, having somebody in one of those um, 
advanced courses when they think about an athlete, because unfortunately, we always think of an athlete as an elite athlete, but that's not necessarily true. We think of an athlete as anybody. We're all an athlete in some way, shape, or form. It's, are we actually practicing it? At what level are we? And do we really want to be involved in competitive sport? You know, being an athlete is your ability to move. And in our position statement we did on LTAD, we defined athleticism in that way. And that it's, can you move in a variety of ways on a variety of surfaces and a variety of conditions and with grace and style and purpose using all of our fitness attributes to be able to do that? You know, using that definition, most of our athletes wouldn't really be considered athletes at all. They're really specialists in one particular sport, but they don't have that broad athletic base in which to really demonstrate that, uh, not just in that sport, but other sports. So when we see an athlete who plays more than one or two sports and can do it well, that's an athlete. But we don't really frame it that way, unfortunately. And we've gotten into this mentality that if we don't get our kids involved uh, by age six, uh, you know, along that professional track, they're never going to make it, but we don't do that in all the other subjects. You know, a friend of mine has this really great meme and it shows this little girl up at the board and it says, you know, you seven math, you know, been specializing in math since age four. And when we put it in that context of school subjects, everybody goes, that's stupid. That's ridiculous. But that's what we do in sports without even batting an eye. Right. Right. I know if people look it up online, they can read in depth about long-term athlete development. And, and there's a protocol there, right? And there's what they call windows of opportunity at certain ages. Um, if you were to give the abridged version here briefly, what exactly is long-term athlete development? Uh, well, long-term athlete development should focus on all of those words. So what's long-term? So, you know, in our society, it's a win by Friday. So we'd say, can you actually peak by Friday to win the big game? That That's as far as we think forward, whereas we really should be thinking of that whole cradle to grave process of the development of, all of our youngsters all the way through, you know, all of a sudden you'll see that kids by age 13, over 75% have stopped playing. You know, there's fewer opportunities, that's part of it, but they've either gotten burned out or they haven't really as had as much fun as they should have. So they look for other things to do instead. So long-term should be, how do we engage them for a longer process? It shouldn't be wins and losses. It should be more satisfaction. And you can look at video games for a good analogy for that, I think. Video games are set up so that kids always want to get to that next level. We don't have that in sports. We have it set up so that it's an adult-focused way that we get to that next level, not really a kid-based way. The athlete we just kind of talked about, you know, what does that look like? How do we get from one level to the next? Well, it should be that we're all an athlete, and how do we address each of us where we are at that particular point in time to get us to that next level? We don't all have to be at the same level. You know, not everybody gets an A in a participation trophy. You know, the development part is really the crutch, I think, because most people don't know too much about youth growth and development to be able to take a look at that. So if we say things like peak height velocity, we're like, what? So we'll just say maturity. When you hit puberty, what, what's that measure? And like, oh, okay, now I get it. But, you know, we don't really track that very well in the United States and other countries. They do a nice job within their sports development system because we know kids are much more likely to get injured during peak height velocity. So we need to watch that during that particular growth phase called adolescent awkwardness, right? So how do we get there? But unfortunately, uh, it hasn't gotten a whole lot of play in the US, although the US Olympic and Paralympic Committee actually have their own version called the American Development Model. So they have something that's already out there, but uh, even sports within national governing bodies have no idea it exists. Very interesting. So peak height velocities, when you're growing at your fastest rate, right? During your... Yeah 
puberty growth spurt. Um, so is that strictly DNA based or is there anything you can do to maximize that? Well, there's, there's a good question. It's basically uh, based on your parents, you know, so there are some formula that kind of look at the uh, growth patterns, the, the height of the parents to kind of have an idea of what the height of the, the youngster is going to be. But essentially, we know that, you know, most girls hit peak height velocity around age 12, you know, give or take a year or so on either side. Uh, boys are around age 14 with a year or so on either side. So we know round when it's going to happen. But um, most recently, we've seen a change in that where kids tend to be maturing more uh, earlier, you could say, uh, than before. So that, that's tending to shift physically, at least a little bit to the left. So you see some kids maturing earlier physically, maybe not mentally or socially, which causes a big disparity also. But when we're looking just at the physical perspective of it, we need really to be aware of how our kids are growing and developing. You know, all of a sudden, kid shows up for practice this um, and they can't kick the ball the way they did last week and everybody's yelling at them like what's wrong with you they grew right so all of a sudden their, their limb length is longer their trunk got longer they're a whole different person and yet we still approach them the same way we always did and, and that's not correct is there anything that you can do as a parent or as the kid him or herself when that phase hits to minimize that awkwardness that clumsiness on another great question. The best part is, you know, just to retrain those motor skills. Essentially, you're a, a new person in a new body once you've grown and developed. But you'll see the literature really says that since most of us develop most of our fundamental motor skills, you know, running, skipping, hopping, jogging, catching, throwing, all of those things by about fifth grade. So by around if you start school at five, you're around 10, 11 years old. So after that, you don't really see it taught very often in physical education. You don't see it really emphasized in sports practice, but you could create different games within your warm-up before you play that incorporate some of those fundamental motor skills that you might not use all of the time. Keep incorporating those. Kids find it fun. You know, it's interesting. I'll, I'll work with a group of high school students. I'm like, all right, so our warm-up is we're going to skip. They can't. They, they either didn't learn it or they haven't done it since fourth grade and they're really awkward and clumsy trying to do it. Or they went to one of these sports performance camps that does a skips or improving speed. So they do this really, you know, jerky tight motion of skipping, driving their knees up. But it's not a loose, fluid, easy moving skip like we learned it in elementary school. So I like to go back and retrain a lot of those schools or for uh, skills or for a lot of kids. You're actually training it up front because they never really learned it. So if you really want to broaden that base of athleticism for kids, the, the greater number of skills that they have at their disposal, the more likely they're going to be able to solve movement problems with those skills out on the field or court. So if your kid gets to be like, say, 13, can you make up for lost time, you know, stuff that wasn't hit when they were, you know, seven, eight, nine years old? Yeah, you can you know, some, some people tend to think that, you know, you'll never get to that really high elite level, but is that really the goal for everybody? I mean, you could certainly be proficient and you could participate in high school programs, uh, college programs, and even adult programs. Maybe you're not going to be elite, but in a lot of sports, they show that kids like in that high school level after they've hit puberty, playing sports then is what really gave them that growth pattern. It's an interesting notion that was uh, discovered by Malcolm Gladwell uh, when he was talking about how those kids born earlier in the year pattern for sports were the ones that tended to play. Well, yeah, because developmentally, they were older than the other kids in that same group level. However, most of the research indicates that those who hang on 
So those who are later matures who hang on to the end of the developmental continuum and keep playing and are still there, they're the ones who tend to settle out of the records once all is settled in high school. Let's say I make you the czar of youth fitness in this oh, country. You. Uh, <laughs> uh, would you make the LTAD uh, curriculum part of the school system? Yes. Absolutely. And, you know, we've, we've done a lot of work in trying to uh, educate those in physical education and in other subjects, uh, because, you know, last time we all checked, we have an obesity epidemic. Uh, we have issues with um, infectious diseases and COVID-19, which are affected by lack of physical activity. Uh, we've seen that physical activity go down over the last 18 months. So there are lots of different ways that we look at it. You know, we don't look at it just from an athletic performance point of view. It's really a public health issue when you get right down to it. To really improve the health of all of our citizens, we have to make you active and like it and enjoy it and want to do it and continue to embrace it. So, you know, a lot of kids like the challenge. You know, the definition of fun is usually uh, the balance of success and challenge. So we have to make them successful by having small-sided games or more opportunities to score. Because quite often what you've seen in the old sports-based phys ed is, you know, those kids that were good at it were good at it. And the others just stood around and waited for gym class to end. Yeah. So, you know, how do we change that within a school and not just within phys ed? You know, if you think about how our school day is set up, we talk about how much physical activity we need, but we don't embrace it in a school setting. You know, kids will sit in class for three or four hours without getting up. And then they have to be quiet. They don't get to move around. If anything goes wrong, whether you're trying to get them to sit for four hours, they can't have recess. They stand on a line, right? So they've lost that opportunity. Uh, they have their recess right after lunch. So right after you finish eating your big meal of the day, uh, you go out and run. And, and now a lot of schools have limited what you can do at recess. A lot of schools won't allow you to use the playground ball, for example. You might get hit, you might get hurt. So they've really limited the access for what kind of movement you can get then. So they've really downplayed the importance of moving throughout the school day, whereas in other countries, it's still a significant part of what they do uh, throughout the day. They get movement breaks, opportunities to do things. And there are schools, that, you know, I'm not saying that every school does it wrong. There are schools that are doing a really nice job of getting their kids to move. But if I was the uh, fitness czar or the LTAD czar, or the sports czar, whatever, you, whatever position you can give me, yeah, I think that at the school day, because that's where we get the kids, and from a public health point of view, we know that it's a lot easier to get kids into positive habits than it is to change those habits once they get older. I know there's a lot of sports to choose from. Um, let's just say hypothetically, you could script in a calendar year, a rotation of sports for a six-year-old, seven-year-old, eight-year-old to play. Which ones come to mind as the ones that really hit different areas of movement, the ones that you would like to see addressed? Uh, another really good question, because um, most of the literature says that gymnastics is something that all kids should learn. So they get really good body awareness. You know, when you're looking at the different categories of motor skills, body awareness is one of those categories. Can we stop? Can we land? Can we roll? Can we get up? So a lot of injuries that we're seeing in youth sports are because kids don't learn to fall. They don't learn how to get back up. They don't know where their body is in space. Um, then the other side is they don't have the strength to actually slow down when they need to and change direction as they should. So uh, gymnastics, I think, or at least the skills within gymnastics, but I would approach uh, sports for that age group more like field day. So it wouldn't actually be all right. So, you know, from September to well, why do we follow the same seasons that the pro leagues follow? First of all, in a lot of our big cities, 
you you're landlocked. You don't have any space to do it. So where are you going to go do this? You know, the younger kids never get the opportunity because there's no space to try it out. So why don't you make it more like field day? So we're really trying to work on skills. So why not show everybody how to throw different size balls to different size targets? Uh, then can you do it moving? Can you then replicate it in certain sports situations? And then you slowly build on that. You know, kind of you scaffold everything in your curriculum in school that you don't all of a sudden, you know, start off writing wonderful mathematical problems. You have to start at the beginning by solving addition problems, subtraction problems. We need to go back and do that more in movement so that kids can be successful because we always want to start off with a success. So, you know, not everybody can throw and hit a target. Um, I still do personal training with adults. And, you know, I get that light medicine ball out and say, all right, let's do that med ball pass. <laughs> they look at me, please don't throw that ball at me because mm -hmm. they, they never really learned to catch it as youngsters. So uh, mm -hmm. I think we would figure out a way to make it fun. And then you could have competitions and festivals of different skills and different ways, but it doesn't have to be the U6 baseball championship, you know, with uniforms. I saw last weekend, um, as I was driving down the street, a car wash. And there's seven girls and the coach, coach written on the back of a shirt. I'm like, what are they raising money for? It's usually to travel right. or to get uniforms. To go to a tournament, yeah. To go to a tournament. So it's not really to improve the, the sport that they're playing. It's not so that they could bring somebody in to help them with movement skills or to figure out how do you get more girls to be able to be on the team for the program. It's to go somewhere. So it goes back into our tourism economy, you know, hotels, all that kind of stuff are really making the money. You know, it's like, I think $26 billion industry youth sports is right now, but it doesn't go into coaches' salaries. Most coaches are still volunteers. It's going into the pockets of wherever they travel. So how do we take that and really bring it back to the, the boots on the ground grassroots level so the kids really get the development. Phys ed is a huge part of that. Can they get it in phys ed and then can that carry over after school or in before school and during the summer? You touched on something in the first part of your answer. Uh, you mentioned you know changing direction. Um, I've watched a lot of youth sports at this point. I got two boys and there's a lot of things that give kids advantages, but specifically I've seen kids that can change direction, that can move laterally and then have the ability to decelerate quickly, yep. it's a huge advantage. And there's a lot of kids that just can't do it. Is that tr really trainable or is that just genetic? It is trainable, you know, especially pre-puberty. That's a highly trainable aspect. And I'm so glad you brought that up because I've noticed this summer, um, you know, I'm past the age of having uh, young kids to, to watch and go see their experience. But the park where I walk my dogs, the, I see parents either working individually with their kids or coaches working with their kids. They'll set up cone drills or ladder drills, but they don't teach them how to change direction. You know, the op what they're really looking for for their product is that they're going in the other direction. They don't look to see, did they plant correctly? Were they leaning back into the direction they're going? Were they starting to focus their eyes in that direction? So all of those pieces of actually changing direction, they're not teaching them. They're just saying, well, they went that way and they came back in this direction, so they must have done it. But yeah, some kids pick up on that uh, better than others, usually early matures, because they might have more strength and size at that particular point to be able to plan and change direction, have a little bit more. But yeah, you definitely can train it. Um, I was a victim of that growing up. I was a late mature. So I remember you know, around fourth or fifth grade, kids start noticing the other kids and who's better at doing different things than you are. I'm like, I was like, wow, I'm terrible at this. I, I was not a good change of direction person. And I think that's probably why I'm so passionate and excited about this 
is because I didn't get all of that opportunity. I, I wasn't that elite athlete in uh, eighth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade either. So uh, high school, I did a really nice job once I caught up to everybody. So I think we all need that chance. And I think we need to do a better job of, of what I call filling the talent pool. In elementary school, all kids should be given these opportunities so they get to choose which pathway they go. You know, we kind of lead that path for them of where they're going to go and, and it doesn't always work. In your time, have you identified really which systems uh, within us are trainable at early ages? Which ones, you know, really respond to, you know, specific things you do with them? You know, there is so much inter-individual variability, which is a fancy way of saying everybody's different. Right. So, you know, you <laughs> might... That's why they show, you know, when you're talking earlier about windows of opportunity, we, we tend not to use that phrase so much because a window implies that it closes so that if you don't get that skill set, like if you look at the, the first iteration of speed is usually seven, eight, nine years old, right? So if you don't develop speed when you're seven, eight or nine, well, if the window closes, wow, I'm shut out. I can no longer develop that. But what we found is that most of the attributes for kids are trainable across childhood and adolescence. You don't know exactly where that sweet spot is for every kid. So part of your original question is like, if you're working with a large group of kids, can you actually train all of them? Yeah, because you're giving them fundamental skills in which to build and they're gonna get it at a certain point. Um, sometimes it's nice to see a group of kids where some kids are getting it and some aren't because those that don't quite get it, you they can watch the ones who are getting it right and kind of learn from that. You know, um, sometimes coaches, and I've noticed this all too often, unfortunately, they go to do the movement and their skills aren't all that good either. So, you know, if the kid's really mimicking what they see the coach do, uh, it's not really the, the pattern that you want to see develop. So um, there are lots of ways of doing that, but getting kids of different ages and abilities at the same time to grow and learn from one another, it's great for the older kids to experience like, wow, I get it now. And then they can go back and help the, the younger kids too. I don't know if it applies to the kids, but, you know, I'm a big believer in uh, FMS, the functional movement, you know, system right. people train with. What should parents look for, you know, when they come across like a trainer? I mean, how do you, what do you look for in their background? What do you look for in how they're working with their kids to know if they know what they're doing and, and it's going to be appropriate? You know, that, that's a, a great question. The biggest thing usually is what's your coaching philosophy? Like, how do you approach this situation? Or you give a scenario, like, like you've presented here, all these different scenarios. Um, coaches should know how to address those scenarios. They should have a broad-based background in youth development and in working with kids in order to really do it. You know, the first thing, of course, is a connection. You know, I worked in a facility with a couple other coaches who were like, you know, I don't really want to work with the kids. Uh, the bosses wanted them to work with the kids. I'm like, no, <laughs> kids are going to run them over. They're going to see right through that and, and they won't last a week or two. So um, having that connection with kids, of course, is the, the biggest part. You can teach a lot of these factors. Um, unfortunately, a lot of our coaching education programs, you know, like a lot of sports have um, at least a, a base coaching education program that they could go do. Uh, they don't always have all of these uh, parts to it that they really should have for all coaches. But, you know, do they know what LTAD is? What's the importance of it? What's their theory about monitoring and tracking growth and development and peak height velocity and uh, the different elements? Do they know what the 10 attributes are? Can they describe them and how they would integrate them into a training program uh, for athletes across childhood and adolescence? You know, things like that, um, I think are important considerations that amazingly, a lot of teams uh, overseas do really well. We, we don't do that here. 
Uh, we don't even track and monitor height and growth or any of those things. So parents could certainly step up and do that and have that indication, you know, because the coaches sometimes change too as you as kids go through a program. But you could go and say, hey, you know what? Um, I just noticed that my son is going through pre kite velocity, so uh, time to make those adjustments in the program. And if they kind of give you that what face, you're like, uh oh. <laughs> then you don't know the next time. These are those adjustments I was telling you about on Monday. So. Yeah. Is anybody really doing clinical research on this type of stuff? I mean, I know it's not as glamorous, right, as, you know, the adult sports world where all the fame and the glory is, right. you know, but is there really anybody out there, whether it's, I don't know, NIH or, or whoever that's really uh, doing hardcore research? You know, uh, depending on how you look at it, I mean, in terms of the importance of strength training, uh, the importance of getting all kids to move and what they need to do. Uh, Avery Fagenbaum, who is over at the College of New Jersey, he's like the leader of international pediatric exercise science, like what kids should know and be able to do. Uh, he was part of the writing team for the position statement. He has uh, a term that he coined called exercise deficit disorder. So for those kids that are not meeting the government um, regulations for the amount of physical activity kids should have. At least now there would be a diagnosis so you would be able to have an intervention for kids to be able to get treated for that. So he's done a lot of work. Like you said, you know, might not be as glamorous because it's kids of different ages and can they get stronger? Showing that the stronger kids can get, the better they are at performing motor skills. Because a lot of times you look at it and you're like, well, is it because the kid can't lunge or is it because they don't have the strength to lunge? And so you have to be able to examine both pieces of that to see exactly where the issue lies for that kid. Uh, internationally, Rodri Lloyd uh, out of Cardiff Metropolitan in the UK. Uh, he's probably uh, the most up and coming uh, exercise uh, science researcher in pediatric population. He has a lab at his school where they actually do training with kids and they've come up with the really great ways. He uses what they call athletic motor skill competencies. So they look at the different factors of athleticism and how to integrate them into your program over time. Uh, there was just an LTAD special feature issue of the National Strength and Conditioning Association's um, Strength and Conditioning Journal. Uh, There's an article in there about how to apply those athletic motor skill competencies that he had in there. It's a great article. For Is that online somewhere? Uh, yeah, I think you can actually... I, think that one is free. I'll have to go back and double check. You know, some of the articles are free and some of them, there's a, a paywall, but mm -hmm. I'll, I'll look, I could send it to you afterwards. So you have that reference, okay. but you know, those, those are great places to look, you know, from an injury perspective, Greg Meyer, who is at Cincinnati general, he's now down in Atlanta. Um, he's done a lot of things, you know, with landing because um, one of the key things we have for sports participation, you know, we want our kids to do the best they can do. And we want to reduce the risk of injury as much as possible. So we also know that there are uh, landing mechanics that we need to look at, especially in girls. So he's done a lot of that leading research with ACL injuries, landing mechanics, how to overcome the, how to produce strength programs to overcome some of those things. And I think that's where the magic is for the, those three researchers in particular. Yeah. Uh, a lot of times our initial thought is always muscles, muscle, muscle, right? You know, but what about things like the nervous system, you know, those neural connections that are built, uh, are those trainable? Can you create more of them? Can you make that message travel faster, you know, from brain to muscle and back? Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting you're talking about it because that's a lot of the research that uh, doctors Lloyd Pagenbaum and Meyer have looked at in terms of, you know, neuroplasticity, which is strongest when you're young, you know, get that neural pruning, so to speak, so that you do make those nerve connections. 
And resistance training actually helps that because you get to figure out where those firing patterns are, but it's not enough to just do a strength exercise because most of those are stationary. You know, you're not going anywhere when you're doing most resistance training, but it's a good closed pattern so that you recognize what can be done. Um, you're right on point because too often what happens in practices is they, they do skills and drills. You know, it's easy to Google it or go to YouTube and you'll find, all right, here are 10 skills and drills to entertain your kids at practice today. And you're like, oh, let's do those then. So, you know, running in and out of the cones, but that's not what the games are. Games are, you know, movement pattern choices that you need to make in different scenarios and you don't know what they're going to be exactly. So you need to create those small sided efforts for kids to learn what to do in certain scenarios. And as they figure it out and continue to do that, those neural pathways get stronger. What about flexibility and mobility? Uh, are we just born with that? Or is that something that you can improve? And certainly it affects performance, right? Like I know like for myself, like I have probably poor ankle mobility. So it affects my ability to get into a squat, which affects my ability to play low. Right, yeah. But for kids, you know, you would think that they would normally have a decent amount of flexibility, mobility, and stability. It's not always the case. Uh, the issue, I think, with a lot of those factors is that it's not just one factor that's affecting it. So, you know, just because you can't get into, a, let's say, a parallel squat position, or if you look at the overhead squat assessment, I can get into a low squat, but I can't with my arms over my head. Hmm. I don't play a sport with my arms over my head. Right. So when I do an analysis of a squatting position, if I'm looking for depth, I want it to be in the position that I'm going to be using for my sport. Sport. So if I'm a lacrosse player, can I do it holding the lacrosse stick? You know, if I'm going to be in defense, if I'm, if I'm the shortstop, can I do it with my hands in the shortstop position? Can I hit that crouch? I don't care about getting my arms over my head because that's telling me that it's a different issue in my upper body, which is fine. And I think it's a good tool. It's a good screening tool, but I don't believe it to be the be all end all. It's just a tool in our toolbox that gives us information, just like most of our assessments are. So really looking at why do you need to look at it and what's, what information is it going to give you? I, I think it's really helpful. So there are a lot of things with the squat. So I'll, I'll do a TRX or a suspension trainer squat because if I can offset gravity and have you get down into a squat, I know it has nothing to do with your mobility and stability. It's all those motor patterns. So I need to figure out how can I get you to do the motor pattern better? And guess what? Doing a stability squat, holding onto a TRX trainer, gets you into that pattern. Then once you get the motor pattern, then you let go, right? Then you can do it in free space. Like, all right, here it is. Then I can load it. So, you know, that's a, a tough one too, because some of us are actually stronger in a loaded position than we are unloaded. Mm. So it's not always, it would say, well, you know, you, unless you can do 20 squats in, in free space, you can't load the bar. Um, it doesn't always work. Some people, if you just give them a little extra resistance, it helps them to set that position. So you really have to be individual about it and see what makes each athlete get into the position that works best for him or her, and then either progress it or regress it, depending on what the positions are that are required uh, athletically in general at first, and then specifically to whatever sport you're playing as you go along. To get the benefit of the type of training that you're talking about, how long should a session be for a kid? How many times a week do they need to do it? Is one time a week enough? No. <laughs> but the good news is you could put it in as part of your dynamic warm-up. So you could do it like within five or 10 minutes in the beginning of practice. Uh, and if you practice three times a week, that's enough. 
that's a great start. You know, you don't have to set aside time because unfortunately what happens with kids if they do uh, get the advantage of having a strength professional come and work with them, it's usually the coach wants his or her time to work with the athletes for the sport and say, all right, I'll give you 20 minutes at the end of practice. The kids are wiped out. They're hungry. They've been on the go all day. So you're not going to get the best benefit. So we know that power movements, anything we want to do explosively needs to be done early to have the best effect. That neural connection again, right? So if you could do even 10, 15 minutes, and this is some of the research that Dr. Fagenbaum has done, you know, give me 10 or 15 minutes in your warm up, and I can improve your strength and performance. Mm-hmm. So that would be a much better approach. Um, it should be part of the situation, part of the practice. It shows another part too. It shows that the coach really does value fitness and getting the kids in shape to play, not just playing the game. Because too often, unfortunately, that's what's happened too. Kids get out and they start playing. They're not prepared for the rigors of sport. What they're doing in practice is not really enough. And, you know, sometimes they'll say, well, I'm putting in mental toughness. Well, that's not really a thing. So we want them to be mentally prepared for the rigors of the sport and physically prepared. And just running them into the ground isn't the best way to do that. Right. One of my sons, he plays basketball, he plays soccer, he's done a little bit of tennis. You know, we do some swim lessons. Uh, let's say he's 13. He's probably on the beginning part of puberty. I bring him to your facility. How would the process start? What would you do with him? Um, I, I start off with something that's really simple. And, you know, most kids laugh when I have them do it, but I have them walk back and forth across the gym floor. It's amazing what you can pick up. So I might say, you know what? Stop carrying your backpack over your right shoulder. And like, what do you mean? Because like, you stand <laughs> like this, because you're always carried over your right shoulder. So it's dropped your posture on that side. Um, look at the way their sneakers wear when they're walking up and down the floor. Are there any patterns of their ankles inverting, everting? Do you notice anything with their knee collapse? Because if you can't walk right, that's our most fundamental movement pattern. Why am I going to try to get you to run, to jump, to sprint, to cut? I have to work on that first. I have to make sure that you have good alignment in your most fundamental pattern and then add other patterns to it to get you where you need to go. So it it looks easy. It sounds good. Then I'll have them walk backwards because a lot of times, you know, kids are smart. They'll say, always watching me walk. I I know that I have this little thing in my hip from, uh, you know, I had a knee surgery last year. Then they'll try to fix it when they walk, but they won't be able to do it when they walk backwards and you'll see it. So Mm -hmm. So I look at the patterns that way. Just see what I see when they move in different directions. Uh, gives me a much better idea because then you coach it up. You know, if sometimes kids don't know that they're collapsing their knee. It's not that they have a weakness. I don't have to necessarily run over and get the TheraBand and put it around their knees and have them do lateral band walks, right? Maybe they just need to learn how to do the movement. <laughs> so it depends, but I have to go through those progressions to see where they are and what we really need to work on. Right. I've told many parents as we sit there and watch little kids play sports and you, you see a couple of kids that are, you know, really advanced doing, doing better than the others. I try to say it diplomatically if I can, but really not a lot before puberty really matters that much because so much can change. We've, you and I have both lived this. Right. Yeah. But sort of what you're saying is some of the, some of the pre-puberty is preparation and does carry over post-puberty, correct? Absolutely. So, you know, that's why it's such a critical time. That's why I've got a physical education system. Our best phys ed teachers should be teaching elementary school 
where you're developing all of those fundamental motor patterns that you're going to be able to use for the rest of your life because it's the confidence and competence you have in your movement ability that's largely going to determine whether you want to continue to move. Same thing when you're playing sports. And what do we see when we see kids play sports? And I see this all the time. Parents have their little uh, stadium chairs. They set it up along the side of the field. They're all talking with one another. The kids are doing two or three different things, <laughs> but they're not learning anything. So yeah, maybe they're all kicking a ball in a goal, but they're not really learning how to kick the ball into the goal. I, I see way, way too often that they're not really being taught the process of what to do. They're only looking at the product. Did the ball go in the net? That's not always the best way to look at it. And, and even within one sport, it's a wonderful opportunity to teach kids all of the skills they're not getting in that sport. So I worked with a group of swimmers, for example. Um, I had them play basketball because they could only do things in the water. Um, and then their push off of the platform was not very solid for a lot of them. They didn't have the power to do it. But once they started playing basketball and started figuring out, you know, just going up to try to make a shot, which they were not very good at in the beginning, but it was pleasant. It was fun. So you know, it doesn't always have to be like a specific skill and drill. We can get them doing different things. And Jeremy Frisch, who's up in Massachusetts, he does a really good job. He sets up all kinds of obstacle courses for kids. And they just run around. They're just having fun. But he's getting all of their fundamental movement skills put together. They're all figuring out how to solve different problems. He has different platforms or different pads at different sizes. They can determine at which level they want to challenge themselves today. So if they're feeling really good about their ability, they can try the hard one. If they're not feeling so good today, just go for the medium one. So they get to set that stage. We don't do enough of that. We just have them running up and down the field, kicking a ball, not always correctly, right? So we'll say, all right, soccer has to, has to be in this part of your foot. Okay. But, you know, they don't really have the setup because kicking a ball is a combination of two skills. It's a combination of running and kicking. But if, still, again, if they're not really running correctly, then you want them to kick something, the skill is going to break down as soon as they get ready to contact the ball. I love the creativity you talked about, you know, with finding solutions. It keeps it fun, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. But you know, a lot of a lot of us don't really have that expertise or knowledge base to say, well, why don't I do this? Because you're like, well, that sounds so silly. I need to focus on the skills and drills. You know, we think about our our coaching has really evolved. Our modern day coaching from World War II uh, military drills. So we still use a lot of that in our coaching practices, and it, it doesn't work for kids. Kids don't want to be yelled at. Kids don't want to be punished for something and run labs because it doesn't really teach them anything except that exercise is punishment. But, you know, we can be so creative and do different things. And one of the best things that I found when I taught phys ed, ask the kids. I had a whole unit where they had to bring in a game. I'm like, you know what? Let, let's see what you know. And they, they brought in some of the coolest games that we would use for warm-ups and for other things for the whole rest of the year because they learned some pretty cool stuff or they'll make it up on their own. And just to watch what they'll make up is really, really very interesting. And then I can integrate that in. I can use it as a reward when we're doing practice or whatever, because strength and conditioning is not always highly valued, even by parents. You know, they want to see their kid excelling at the sport by playing more of the sport. Like, I don't have time for strength and conditioning. We have a tournament tomorrow, right? Right, so, right. So figuring out how to make it fun and engaging, um, not kids don't always get tired. So I always get complaints from parents. Like I expect my kid to come out of there soaking wet, breathing hard and really tired. I'm like, well, you're in the wrong place then because that's not to their best benefit. And you have to explain why, you know, it's yeah. not all about getting tired. It's about getting better. I'm sure you were a really popular PE teacher. That sounds like a lot of fun, um, within oh, your, did. within your workouts. Um, and I won't keep you much longer. Mm -hmm. Do you have a, a couple of favorite go-to 
movements or exercises that you always incorporate with the kids? Hmm. Yeah, some kind of jumping, I, I would always say. And um, I have a, a broad jump mat and then a vertex vertical jump. It's just fun. Like kids like to see how many of those veins they can actually hit. They don't realize how hard they're working. Next thing you know, they're, they're reaching up for they hit the white one. And now, right now I got a blue one. Right now I got a red one. They're really getting a lot better at jumping. <laughs> and but that's, say, well, the reward, that? that's the reward you were talking about earlier, like the video game. That's right there. Exactly. And so they want to get to that next level. They say, all right, so how far up did I get last time? And then they'll try to do better. Same with the broad jump mat. You can measure where they're going to do that. Um, the other thing I think would be a medicine ball. There's just so many fun things you can do with that, like throwing it backwards over your head, pushing it forward, uh, doing different relays. I interestingly had an experience with a group of older gentlemen who were part of a golf fitness class that I, I got to monitor one day. I got out the two pound medicine ball and we played hot potato. You never saw 75 year olds <laughs> so competitive trying to get that, that medicine ball to somebody else without dropping it. It was really funny to watch. I'm like, you know what? Kids of all ages should have the opportunity to do that because look at how exercise is for adults. It's pretty boring for most of us. Mm -hmm. All right, I got to do the leg press, then the leg extension. So they kind of go in the same order. I'm like, man, I've been doing that for 30 years. So I'm a competitive strongman now because that was new, fresh, and exciting for me, a whole different way of lifting. So I don't necessarily impose that on kids, but carries are great because it helps really great with core stability. Can I have them carry something down one way, carry it back? One time, I'll just finish with the one story here. I had, we have a, a tire that's maybe 100 pounds. It's really, really light. So I was going to have them flip it two of them grabbed onto the tire and then two of them grabbed onto the other side and they created a multi-directional tug of war. I would have never thought to create this game, but you know, tug of war is always in one plane. It's always moving forward and back, right? They had the line, but they pulled each other in all different directions, trying to get them over the line. They were going for like nine minutes and they wouldn't let go. Wow. It wasn't until they finally, and they just kept them like, wow, how, how great is this for their, their focus, their concentration, moving in different directions. I'm like, wow, I look like a genius for creating this game. So different things like that. Um, you know, you're not allowed to play dodgeball in physical education in most states. Can't use kids as human targets. Um, I found different ways around that. Kids have created different ways of doing that. So they can learn to throw, to dodge, to catch. Uh, and then different ways you don't sit out if you miss. Once somebody on your team catches the ball, somebody on your team gets to come back in. So it's exhausting. It's like a 20 minute game if you play it that way and kids learn and they practice and it's okay. And, and it's fun. So we just have to figure out more ways to be creative to do that for kids. Dr. Rick Howard, I can't thank you enough for your time, man. Uh, where can people find you online? Where can they look you up to get more information? Uh, actually, I made all of my um, ats the same. So it's RI Howard 41. So you can find me on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or LinkedIn. Uh, that's my Gmail. So if you want to email me something, it's rihoward41 at gmail.com. So always look forward to conversations, learning what other people do and uh, what struggles you have, what um, successes you've had too, because uh, we all learn from one another. I've, I've learned here today too. Absolutely. Thanks, Coach. I really appreciate it. Hey, thank you. Appreciate you having me on. All right, man. Have a good one. You too. Bye now.